Welcome to the July 2020 edition of Beef Monthly. I'm Dr. Ron Lemonade, your Beef Extension Specialist at Purdue University in the Department of Animal Science. We have these stories and more. In headline news, we'll talk a little bit about foot and mouth disease vaccine. The increased U.S. prime carcass grading okay, that we're seeing currently. USDA APHIS's public comment period on radio frequency identification for interstate shipment of cattle and the proposed Ramp-Up Act legislation. In the Working for You segment, we're going to have Joe Moore, Executive Vice President of IBCA. In production and management tips, we're going to talk about summer items to consider. In the farm safety segment, we're going to have Dr. Bill Field. In the Ask Dr. Ron segment, we're going to be talking about a producer question on creep feeding. In upcoming programs and events, we have two webinars, one from Farm Journal and the other one from uh, South Dakota State University that you might be interested in. And now, a word from our good friends at Corteva. Your land is more than a business. It's a heritage that has been passed down from those who tended it before you, by those who shaped it, changed it, and cared for it. Your land has a legacy, one that you carry on, but also one you build on. At Corteva AgriScience, we are the stewards of a lasting legacy. We have a responsibility to Dow AgroSciences to maintain the relationships and trust they built and to build upon those foundations. To help you care for your land, to provide innovations that help you protect the hard work and investment you've poured into it. To help you build a legacy that can be passed on for generations to come. Corteva AgriScience. We begin headline news with foot and mouth disease. Foot and mouth disease is a highly contagious disease that can affect all cloven-hooved animals, including cattle, pigs, sheep, goats, and deer, but it is not a threat to public health or food safety. The U.S. eradicated foot and mouth disease in 1928 and has successfully prevented its reintroduction into this country, but an outbreak could devastate the livestock industry and our national food supply if left unchecked. Veterinarians, researchers, and livestock organizations have long worried about the possibility of an outbreak of foot and mouth disease in the United States and the fact that we do not have access to adequate levels of vaccines should an outbreak occur. Congress has set aside money in the 2018 Farm Bill for the Vaccine Bank and other measures to guard against foreign animal disease outbreaks. The U.S. Department of Agriculture's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, or APHIS, has announced on July 8th the initial purchase of foot and mouth vaccine for the National Animal Vaccine and Veterinary Countermeasures Bank, commonly known as the U.S. Vaccine Bank. APHIS will invest $27.1 million to create a U.S.-only foot and mouth disease vaccine stockpile for use in the event of an outbreak. In our second news story, we find that one significant impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the beef industry is a number of carcasses grading prime. 
With the slowdown and shutdown of packing plants during the March and April time frame, over a million head of market-ready cattle were held on feed longer, which resulted in both increased carcass weights and carcass quality grades. From this table, we can see that year over year, we've had a pretty significant increase in the percent of carcasses grading prime. And if you look at the bottom line of all of this, year to date, we're running over 10% primes this year compared to about 8.6% prime last year. The results of this is that we're seeing a lower price spread between prime and choice quality grade cattle. In our third news story, USDA APHIS is seeking public comment on a proposal where APHIS would only approve radio frequency identification, or what we commonly refer to as RFID tags, as the official ear tag for use in interstate movement of cattle. Currently, APHIS accepts both metal and RFID tags. The transition to RFID supports the goal of rapid and accurate disease traceability of infected and at-risk animals in the event of a disease outbreak. The only thing that this proposal really changes, if it becomes final, is how animals would be identified for interstate shipment. Our last news story also deals with unprecedented pandemic disruption to the beef processing sector. Bipartisan legislation has been introduced by the House Ag Committee to, number one, bolster market access for cattle producers, and number two, to keep store shelves across the country stocked with wholesome and nutritious beef products. The legislation called Requiring Assistance to Meat Processors for Upgrading Plants, or the acronym for that is RAMP-UP Act, would provide federal incentives to beef processors to increase processing capacity. The Ramp Up Act would authorize federal grants up to $100,000 for existing state inspected and custom exempt meat processing plants to become federally inspected. This legislation would open new market opportunities for allowing producers and processors to market beef products across state lines. In this segment, we've got uh, Joe Moore, who is the Executive Vice, Vice President of the Indiana Beef Cattle Association. Joe, we've got, uh, we're, we're kind of a two-hat state. Yes, we are. Okay, so talk a little bit about that. Okay. Um, well, the Indiana Beef Cattle Association in our office is here. Uh, we also have another organization here, which is the Indiana Beef Council. And the Indiana Beef Cattle Association is the policy membership side of the Indiana Beef Industry. And then the Indiana Beef Council is the checkoff uh, side where marketing, promotion, education, and research is done. So, you know, Joe, in your role, um, you know, you are the registered lobbyist, okay, for the Indiana Beef Cattle Association. So yes. let's talk a little bit about what you do there. Okay. Well, I think it's important to know that I don't act alone, that the Indiana agricultural community really, for the most part, uh, works in unison uh, on agricultural issues that we face downtown. Um, most of the time, 99% of the time, we share common interests and common goals. So I think it's important to know that when 
I'm downtown lobbying on behalf of a specific piece of regulation or, or lobbying against a regulation. Um, there are other organizations there like Indiana Pork, Indiana Farm Bureau, Indiana Dairy, who are also there helping that cause along. So, you know, you're, one of the roles that you play is, is creating those relationships and keeping those relationships between the other commodity groups. Correct. That, that help move the ag agenda forward. That's right. right. And we are told here that Indiana is unique in that regard. There are other states where the different commodity groups maybe don't get along as well. Here, we've never really had an issue. We've always, there have been times when we might have differing views on a specific item, say ethanol, for, for instance. Um, the beef industry and the corn industry probably viewed the ethanol thing a little differently in 2012, 2013. Sure. Um, but we, we put that to the side when it came to other issues that we shared common interests on. So, Joe, um, you know, another key role that you play is kind of staying in contact with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association right. and, quite honestly, the CBB, the Cattlemen's Beef Board. Right. And, you know, you're, uh, you know, it'll spend a lot of time going to meetings, okay, related to those two, both the policy side and the checkoff side. And then you spend, you know, you kind of organize a delegation that goes to Washington every year for the legislative session. Right. So let's talk a little right. bit about that. And we're getting ready to do that here real soon. Um, yeah, it's, it's really important, uh, all the great work that our, our friends at NCBA do on behalf of the industry in Washington, D.C. Is, is immeasurable. Uh, the benefit that the country, everybody, uh, takes in from that. Um, and they serve a great role in keeping us in the states informed as to what's going on in Washington, D.C. So, as you, as you said earlier, a lot of times I'll send out a call to action saying you need to contact your legislator, your congressman, your senator about this specific bill or this specific piece of legislation. And that really is generated from our friends in Washington, D.C. at NCBA. Anything else that, you know, we need to talk about? I mean, obviously there's a whole lot of other <laughs> things that we can talk about in terms yeah, we of sit here for, a while. for promotion events, you right. know, like Team Beef and, right. and uh, you know, uh, billboards. I think, that, I think people, I think there's a lot of confusion. Um, I don't think people really understand how this all works, if you want my honest opinion, and how the checkoff works and how two organizations can live side by side in the same office, but yet... We keep the firewall in place to keep the checkoff dollars from being spent toward policy or regulatory. And um, I think we do a great job of that, as the other states do. Um, the, the costs of running this office are determined. The expense is determined by how many hours we work, as you well know. And we all keep timesheets. And those timesheets are done every day, and we... We log our hours depending on what, what, what project we're doing, right, what activity we're doing. And then at the end of the year, those hours are added up, and they come to a total. And so the rent, the lights, everything is determined by the percentage of the hours worked for that specific organization. Our checkoff averages about 30%. We do 70% policy and about 30% checkoff. So the checkoff part of the expenses to run the office is about 30% of the total. So... I think that's interesting for people to know that um, their checkoff dollars are being monitored very closely and that everything we do is now pre-approved by USDA AMS. Um, all of our social media, all of our materials, all of our 
promotions, all of our events, they're pre-approved. So um, they approve our budget, they approve our marketing plan. So the oversight on the checkout side is very, very stringent. And we're pretty fortunate that we've got two of our Indiana producers serving in some pretty key roles. Oh, yes, sir. Joe Horseman serves on uh, the Federation yes. Committee, which is kind of the Federation of State Beef Councils. Correct. All right, so there's there's some dollars, some checkoff dollars that kind of are under their right. control, but again, producer-driven. Correct. And then we've got Norm Boyles, who has just recently been uh, elected to the Secretary-Treasurer of the right. Cattlemen's Beef Board. Right, and I think we need to keep in mind that um, within two years, Norm will be the chairman of the Cattlemen's Beef Board, which is a that's huge. I mean, that's a pinnacle achievement in the nation's beef industry. So we're, we're pretty fortunate, and I think that says something about right. how Indiana – positions itself in terms of the firewalls and how we spend money and how Correct. how we, you know, have accountability for all of this. Right. And, you know, I think just the overall impression across the industry of, of what we do here in Indiana. Joe, thank you so much for joining us. Ron, it's always a pleasure. In production and management tips, the first thing we're going to talk a little bit about is heat stress, okay? It's been seasonably hotter than normal for this time of year. And heat stress obviously can have some negative effects on animal productivity. And, and in our cow herds, it would probably re translate into reduced reproductive performance. And in the feedlot, it would be reduced average daily gain, poor feed efficiency, and in particularly the really heavy, dark-hided cattle, uh, these cattle could actually succumb to heat stress. The second one is dry conditions. Um, many areas of the state have received maybe a pop-up shower or two, but we haven't had any real significant general-type rains. And so there are areas in the state that are drier than normal, and so this may be a time to consider three different alternatives. One of them is supplementation. Supplementing the cow to support lactation is kind of an expensive proper, proposition. But if we would anticipate that, that rains will resume okay, in the not too distant future, supplementation is sure an option. If you're going to supplement, I would highly recommend that you use a high fiber feed, something like soybean hulls, corn gluten, distiller's grains okay, as your supplementation as opposed to throwing out a lot of corn, which would contain starch. Starch reduces the fiber digestibility by altering the rumen microbes and altering the rumen pH. So the highly digestible fiber of corn, uh, soybean hulls, distiller's grains, corn gluten feed uh, is a fiber source and it does not reduce the pH of the rumen and subsequently does not affect uh, fiber digestion of the rest of the, the diet. The second alternative is creep feeding, and I'm going to—I'll address that more in in the Ask Dr. Ron segment. Um, but creep feeding is sure an alternative uh, in if you're running short on on pasture, uh, and and maybe milk production is is lower because of the nutrient profile of your grass. The third alternative is to consider early weaning. Okay, early weaning is a uh, something. Weaning calves at uh, younger ages than something like 180 days of age uh, gives the cow some relief 
uh, and, and feed conversion on early wean calves can be very, very acceptable. Four to one, five to one feed conversion. The next topic uh, that I'm just going to touch on is that uh, for those of you that had wheat, uh, you know, planting some summer annuals to help uh, get through the grazing season and maybe, uh, you know, if the rains return in your area, uh, it may give you some later fall uh, grazing. The next topic is early pregnancy diagnosis. And, and as I indicated just a minute ago, the drought, the heat uh, in some parts of the state uh, could result in lower uh, reproductive performance. And my recommendation would be to early pregnancy check and especially early pregnancy check your replacement heifers, okay, those virgin heifers that are getting bred for the first time. The earlier you can preg check those uh, and get them moved out of the system, uh, the greater the opportunity for those heifers to be worth more money. And the reason why I say that is that a heifer that is uh, uh, maybe a long yearling, okay, coming out of the breeding season, uh, can still be marketed and go into a feedlot, be fed, and still reach choice quality grade. If we don't preg check them, we hold them over, we find out next spring that these heifers are, are, are open, uh, these heifers are going to be worth co-cow prices, okay, as opposed to feeder calf prices. So something to think about in getting rid of some of these uh, non-performing uh, animals. And the next topic is fly control. Um, I don't know how widespread it is, but at least in my herd, we've, we've probably experienced more pink eye this year than we've had in the past. We've done a really good job of controlling flies. We've mowed seed heads, uh, but somehow we've we've ended up with more treatments of pink eye than than we've had in the last 15 years. Um, the next one is uh, get really getting ready for uh, weaning. All right, um, you know, start thinking about what you're going to do at weaning time. Are you going to are you going to uh, vaccinate your calves pre-weaning, okay, with a booster shot at weaning time so that you can sell these calves as vaccinated calves and maybe even hold those calves on a little bit uh, and, and really create a preconditioning program of 45 to 60 days post-weaning, okay, before you market them. Then the last topic that, that I just called to your attention is that um, if you've got weeds in your pastures, uh, you, know, you might start thinking about getting ready for a fall herbicide application. Um, and particularly for some of the weedy, uh, the, the uh, woody plants, you know, like uh, uh, multiflora rose, uh, like uh, uh, ironweed, uh, those weeds uh, that would uh, maybe uh, respond very, very well to herbicide application in the fall. One of the things that a lot of farmers don't recognize are the loads involved uh, with some of the components on pieces of machinery that are often supported by hydraulics or large springs. I have in my hand here a piece of a spring that is incredibly strong that's used to support hundreds of pounds of weight. Uh, we have a, a header here uh, on a mower that is supported by springs. And if anyone is to work on these things without recognizing the potential for the spring to come loose or to allow the header to come down or the component to collapse, it can cause significant injuries just through the weight 
that's involved with these pieces of machinery. So whenever you see springs on machines, you've got to recognize that they're carrying a lot of tension, a lot of load, and that you need to be cautious around them. If you don't know what you're doing with it, the best so source is to look at the operator's manual. And in some cases, they're going to tell you to refer to a service technician that's specifically trained to ha handle those heavy loads that are involved in uh, uh, spring-loaded situations. Round bales have saved an awful lot of work for farmers today because they've replaced many of the small square bales that had to be handled by hand. Now instead of handling hundreds of small square bales, we can handle a lot fewer big round bales that weigh heavier, that are easier to transport, and also uh, easier to store. One of the issues though with them is that because of their weight, their size, they have become a source of injuries related to round bales that have come off loads, that have been uh, Tried to, they've tried to, farmers have tried to lift them up and uh, to move them around and they come back onto the operator. So whenever you're handling round, large round bales or large packages of hay, you need to recognize just how heavy they are. They can run from 800 to 1,200 pounds and, and no one is a match for one of these bales if it comes back on them. So be extremely cautious when you're loading and unloading round bales so that they are, are secure throughout the entire loading process. In this segment of Ask Dr. Ron, I got a, a call from a producer that said that he was in an area of the state that has missed many of the pop-up showers, and it's been really hot. His pastures are starting to show the stress, and he's wondering if he should consider creep feeding to reach uh, near normal calf weaning weights. Well, one of the first things that we need to kind of think about is when a calf reaches about 150 pounds, um, mom's milk is probably not supplying everything that the calf needs. And so we talk about this hungry calf gap, the difference between milk production and the calf's requirement. And obviously, uh, calf is going to consume milk until, you know, it reaches weaning. Although at the, at about 500, 600 pounds, you know, these calves are not going to be consuming very much milk. Okay. Those cows are going to be starting to dry off. So the only way for that calf to really perform is that if it consumes more forage. And if the forage quality or quantity are limiting, that will limit the calf's ability to gain. So the question of to creep feed or not creep feed is kind of broken into two pieces. Well, number one, what does it do for the cow? Well, don't expect any difference in milk production. All right. If you creep feed the calves and don't expect any differences in reproductive performance if you creep feed the calves. All right. So the cow really is not the variable here in terms of creep feeding. Now, what does creep feeding do for the calf? Well, number one, it adds weight. OK. And we if you look through the literature, it's probably somewhere between 20 and 50 pounds of additional calf weight due to creep feeding. And obviously that depends on a lot of factors. All right. But but that kind of catches the normal. The second factor is is that it adds bloom. And so if you're selling you know calves that where fat is really valuable, okay. So maybe it's club calves, maybe it's purebred cattle. If you're selling these calves, okay, that extra condition, okay, or bloom uh, can be valuable. All right. Uh, the third thing that, that creep feeding does is it reduces weaning stress. All right. It makes that transition from 
you know, being with mom to not being with mom, much less stressful if the calf already knows how to eat some feed. And then the fourth one uh, that kind of comes to mind, that, uh, and there's probably others, but the fourth one that comes to mind is is it can be a substitute for lower milk production. And if we've got poor quality forage or not enough forage, okay, milk production is going to be decreased on the cow. And so creep feeding would substitute for that lower milk production. Now, on the con side, okay, or the disadvantage side of creep feeding is that it does add cost, okay? And depending on the situation, uh, feed efficiency of, of that added gain can be five, five pounds of feed per pound of gain all the way up to about 15 pounds of feed per pound of gain. And so that becomes one of the real key considerations of whether or not I need to creep feed. The second one is if I create too much fat on these calves, okay, it probably will have a negative effect on feeder calf prices at the auction markets. And if we put too much fat in the, in the udder of replacement heifers, um, that can have a negative effect on lifetime milk production. So if we're going to creep feed, we don't want to, to get these cattle too fat. We want to continue to skeletal growth, adding muscle, but we don't want to add a lot of excess fat. This table kind of shows the, the uh, relationship of how much creep feed I might expect over a creep feeding period. So, for example, if I was going to creep feed for the last 30 days prior to weaning, I'd expect these calves to eat about 210 pounds of creep feed, and they'd probably average about 7 pounds per head per day. If I was going to take the other extreme and I was going to creep feed for 120 days, I would expect these calves to eat about 540 pounds apiece, Okay, and average about four and a half pounds of creep feed over that 120 day period. So it gives you just some idea of kind of how to put this thing together. If you think about the estimated additional calf gain, um, obviously average daily gain is going to be different in different scenarios. Okay, and then of course we've got the time frame over on the, on the, on the left hand side of this table. But when would I expect low average daily gains due to creep feeding? Well, it would be when I have good quality forage um, and good quantity of forage, all right? So if I've got really good pastures, average daily gain of the calf due to creep feed is going to be fairly minimal. If, on the other hand, I'm running short on pasture or if I have low quality pasture, I would expect increased average daily gains. All right. And obviously those calves would gain more and we would add more weaning weight as a result of uh, creep feeding. So when should I creep feed? According to the, to the situation, for example, if I have a drought, if I have endophyte infected fescue, um, we know that calves will not perform as well on endophyte infected fescue as they do on on cleaner pastures, right? And then the question becomes, do I, do I supplement energy or crude protein? And my recommendation would be, you don't need to go really heavy on the energy and you don't really need to go heavy on the crude protein. I'd probably look at something really simple, all right, such as a soybean hull corn gluten mixture of maybe 50-50, all right. It's a high fiber feed. 50-50 mix of soybean hulls and corn gluten would give me about 15, 16 percent crude protein. Works really good. It's a high high uh, fiber feed, so I don't have to worry too much about acidosis. 
you know, or calves going off and off feed and on feed works really, really well. The second one is according to economics, okay, cost of gain. And feed efficiency is sure a big factor. How much gain do I expect? And then obviously the cost that I incur, what's my feed cost, what's my labor cost, what's my equipment cost, um, becomes obviously a, a factor. And then feeder calf prices, okay? when you, If you're going to creep feed, okay, you have heavier calves, realize that there's going to be a price slide. Heavier calves typically sell at a lower dollar per hundred weight. And if we get these calves too fleshy, Okay, we could have a discount in the auction market because of body condition or fat. And then the third one is according to need. If I've got poor forage quality or quantity, I'd sure consider maybe creep feeding. If I have young cows or poor milking cows um, that that won't have milk production normal, um, obviously those the calves from those cows would benefit from having a few extra groceries. And then your younger calves, the, your your late born calves, um, could be could benefit, and so you might be able to get those calves to catch up a little bit to the older calves, okay, and sell a more uniform calf crop. And then you have to really evaluate the value of bloom. And for some producers, that extra fat translates into dollars, and other producers, uh, particularly going to the auction market, that could be a discount. In upcoming programs and events, I call your attention to two different virtual um, educational opportunities. The first one is South Dakota State University Virtual Feedlot Short Course. That short course does have a $25 registration fee, and it begins Thursday, July 16th, and runs through August 27th. It's on Thursdays. Um, and just briefly, the topics are bunk management, facility management, Backgrounding systems, cattle feeding risk management, growth enhancing technologies, feedlot health, and and then a, both a cattle feed and and cattle and feed outlook. The second one is a farm journal virtual field day. Okay, managing through the black swan cycle, how to face uh, over and overcome financial stress, predicting chaos, particularly on the weather weather side, is the U.S. too dependent on corn. Uh, use machinery values, trends, and predictions, technology traceability in the beef industry of the future, the um, future of farming and dealing with reconnecting consumers to farmers, and then learning opportunities for beef on farm dairy, uh, beef on dairy breeding projects, okay, and, and maybe feeding out that, that dairy half-blood. Both of these programs are listed in the show notes below, and you can get more information. This presentation was a production of the Animal Science Department at Purdue University.